As China leads in retail innovation, North American consumers are opening their minds to new tech. Meanwhile, many off-price retailers are staying offline until further notice. And this just in, people are debating if it's appropriate to label essential retail workers as heroes. We've got the scoop and more on today's episode. It's Monday, April 27th, and this is your Retail Rundown. Today, we're joined by guests Ricardo Belmar and Gotham Wadkepat. Ricardo is the Senior Director of Global Enterprise Marketing at Invovista and retail influencer with over 20 years of experience in the digital transformation space. He's also a Rethink Retail Advisor. Gotham is an Assistant Professor of Marketing and the Retail Innovation Center Director at George Mason University. Thank you both for joining today. Thank you. Thank you. Let's begin. As many retailers scramble to update their e-commerce strategies, off-price retailers are waiting out the storm. U.S.-based TJX companies, which owns TJ Maxx, Marshalls, and Burlington stores, shut down both its physical and its e-commerce stores, while deep discount retailer Ross has never offered an online option. And while some analysts say that the growing cancellation of orders by full-line retailers will create the greatest buying environment for off-price in over a decade, Forrester is predicting that discount clothing retailers will shed $9 billion in sales. Ricardo, what are the benefits of shutting down e-commerce operations right now, and how long will this strategy be sustainable? So for me, I think really there's one key benefit here for any of these off-price discounters to shut down. It really comes down to health of their workers and distribution centers. Uh, you know, the stores are already closed. They're, they're not essential retailers. You take TJX's announcer, right? They've completely shut down uh, and they're not the only one, you know, at at some level, they had to have gone through the calculations that said, what's it going to cost us to keep these distribution centers running for what's essentially a very minimal e-commerce operation? I'm sure that's not something they decided was worth sustaining that low level of sales and risking employee health and risking the operation of the distribution centers and everything else, that it was just a, a safer bet to shut down. And plus, if you you take into account all these other reports we see from places even outside of their industry segment, we've got you know meat processing facilities, the recent analysis from Tyson Foods, and had to shut facilities down because of dramatically large numbers of people coming down with COVID. So you know it, it's got to be a, a somewhat of a scary proposition, I think, for these retailers. Do we really accept taking sales down to zero for what's an indefinite amount of time? Or do we take on the risk of keeping a relatively small operation going for a low level of, of e-commerce sales? I'm, I'm sure they're also considering, you know, in, into this, whether it's a distribution center stores, how you implement social distancing, these things, it's not simple, right? I think we're seeing evidence of that when you look at the conditions that workers are reporting at these distribution centers and warehouses. Those weren't facilities that were designed, right, to have people spaced out this way. Mm-hmm. Uh, for those conditions. So they're, they're all having right. to adapt. <laughs> We're bumping shoulder to shoulder, right? Rummaging through random stuff at TJ Maxx. And yeah, no, no, no one was intended to think about, oh, are we too close? Do you know, can I pick up this box over here? Or no, I'll let you pick it up because you're closer. No one was really to, trained to think about those things and having to make that adaptation that is complicated. Even when they reopen, they're still going mean, likely to have to deal with at least some level of these things. I think in the end, that's got to be what enters into that decision. But I mean, the one flip side I see to this that maybe was an argument they had to deal with is you're going to end up with a group of workers that you'll have no choice but to furlough, right? If there's no sales coming in, right. you have all these people not getting paid. So it's going to affect your ability to ramp back up afterwards because you've got to try to bring people back. 
So there's that to consider as well. I also I read another example recently with Primark in Europe. You know, they went from $650 million of sales a month or 60 million pounds of sales per month to zero. It's hard to even conceive of that kind of a drop for any business. But they have been in, in turn working financial models with different assumptions as to what month stores will reopen, ranging from anywhere from uh, next month to May of next year. Their CEO has been in an interview saying that they've worked the models, they have the merchandise, they'll have the inventory, they know how they're going to reopen when the time comes, but they have no e-commerce operation at all. So it was a fairly straightforward. Once all their stores closed, they had to just shut down all the operations because there's nothing left for them to do. But, you know, I, again, they're, they're saying they can handle it. I haven't heard similar things coming from TJX, but I'm sure they're going through the same exercises at their corporate office. I think really the question for them is going to come down to when we get to the other side and you'll have all these other apparel retailers and, and manufacturers looking to get rid of excess inventory from seasonal inventory rather that we, we essentially skipped over that people weren't able to buy. You hear a lot of people talking about, well, it's going to be fantastic for the off-price stores. They're going to have their pick of the litter. They're going to have more merchandise than they've ever had to deal with. But I kind of look at those statements and I think, well, they only have certain capacity. Mm -hmm. There's only so much space, right? Right. Yeah. right. You know, they don't want to bring in excess inventory into their stores any more than any other retailer does. And they know their models. They know how much they can turn per store. So that doesn't automatically mean they're going to buy 10 times as much merchandise as they used to. I see it that it works the other way. They're going to be pickier about mm -hmm. what they choose now because they're going to have a much better selection to choose from. If you're a consumer, that may mean that you're going to find the most amazing deals you've ever thought you would find <laughs> at these off-price stores when they reopen. Gotham, do you think the lift of social distancing restrictions will cause a resurgence of in-store bargain hunting or will consumers be less inclined to rummage through products? Yeah, so I, I agree 100% with what Ricardo is saying that, you know, this is a strategic decision that firms make. And it's mostly a resource allocation decision along with the safety of the employees. And if I remember correctly, TJX had like hundred thousands of people. So this is not surprising. And especially given that their online audience is very limited, it makes sense for them to do it. I think I'm bringing up a couple of other points um, before I address your question of the, whether it's a long-term benefit play or not. The first is that I, I don't think TJX has invested in technology. And so as a consequence for them to actually do, make this e-commerce operation successful is going to be hard. And I don't think it matches up very well with the business model that they have, right? It's low price treasure hunt kind of a model. And I'm not sure they have the e-commerce platform set up to kind of do that. So these are other reasons why I think it makes sense to actually shut down the e-commerce side. Of course, it's a contrarian perspective, especially when you have Target stating last yesterday, I think that they had like 265% increase in their online sales or something. You said 265% or something I around that. I could be that. wrong with the numbers, but I saw a number that was quite high and made me think that, well, those who have the technology in place are going to benefit and those who don't are going to hurt. Now, with regards to the other point that you had raised with, is there going to be a windfall once things open? I don't think so. I think consumer behavior is going to change significantly. And I do think TJX will have more inventory. 
But the notion that people are going to come flocking to these stores might be overstated because think about the target audience for these stores. They are going through a recessionary environment at this point of time. And as Ricardo said, they are going to cherry pick what they buy. I also think they're going to actually start be a little bit more forward looking. They are going to anticipate, well, what happens if these things come back? And so they're going to strategically buy things that might not be in the current product mix that TJX has. And so people have to think about that issue. And as Ricardo said, I also think you have to change the way the store operates, right? Like we think about at this point, it's all touchless. Mm -hmm. I know I was in TJ Maxx uh, before this happened. I don't think it was close to being touchless. No. (laughs) Uh, And I don't think they have the infrastructure. Well, maybe they do. Maybe that's why they're shutting down at this point is actually gearing up the stores to revamp it for this new world that you will see. But I don't know if they have the technology infrastructure that will allow them to make this transition that is needed. So I will take the contrary view on this, that I don't think that TJX will actually do all that better when things come back. Caveat on the fact that they're not changing the current operations. If they change their operations dramatically, then yes. I do think they stand a very good chance because of the recessionary environment. Mm -hmm. Well said, I think that's a great point. Before we dive into our next segment, let's hear some good news. While IKEA begins reopening stores in Europe, its sales in China have reportedly reached pre-crisis levels. Shoe retailer Zappos recently launched a new customer service for anything hotline to help people find answers or solutions as they navigate a new normal. From local restaurant delivery or Netflix recommendations, to checking what grocery stores have the items you need or simply offering a kind voice to talk to, Zappos customer service team is ready to help. No matter the ask, big or small, U.S. residents are encouraged to reach out for support. Zappos also joined forces with Crocs to power their a free pair for healthcare initiative to aid in donation efforts to healthcare workers. And the retailer is utilizing its Zappos Campus Bistro to provide more than 1,000 daily meals to the elderly and most vulnerable in their community. U.S. arts and crafts retailer Michaels donated $1 million worth of fabric, quietly working with more than 70 local organizations to provide fabric masks to hospitals. It also launched contactless delivery and is expanding options like same-day delivery for select locations. And while we're on the topic of good news, I'd like to mention a charity based in the U.S. that I connected with recently. You may have heard of them. It's called Delivering Good. This organization provides new retail products such as adult and children's clothing, shoes, backpacks, and more to people in need. If you are a retailer wondering what to do with all of that excess inventory caused by COVID-19, please consider partnering with Delivering Good. They handle all of the logistics, so donating is a breeze for you. And to learn more, you can visit delivering-good.org or contact me directly at julia at rethink.industries, and I will make a personal introduction for you. Moving on to our next segment, we'll discuss consumer sentiment 
about technology. A new study from Global Insights firm National Research Group revealed that 9 in 10 Americans have better appreciation for technology during the COVID-19 pandemic. This 90% statistic is a reversal from what we saw in a Gallup Night survey conducted just one month prior, which found that 60% of Americans believe major tech companies do more to divide the country than to unite it. During last week's show, we spoke with Ashley Dudryrenok, a market expert living and working in Hong Kong, and she told us that facial payments as well as drone and driverless deliveries are already standard practices in China. Gotham, do you think North American and European consumers will become more open-minded to innovative retail technologies such as facial pay as this pandemic looms on? I think this comparison between the East and the West, or at least the China, where they are technologically far more advanced and they have a culture that is more accepting of these kind of incursions to privacy, and comparing it with the Western world where we have a lot more regulations is probably not the right way to take things. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't see facial recognition and things. There is a significant resistance to it. Mm -hmm. But on the flip side, biometrics, QR code uh, driven technology, things that are much easier to adopt should be adopted by companies and will be quicker to help these companies move to this new world. Uh, And they should be, in my opinion, they should start that process now while they are in the lockdown phase moving to a more digital environment. Do you think retailers should jump the gun and remove self-checkout kiosks completely and make things uh, in the stores more spread out and put markers on the store? Or would that scare the customer? I mean, what changes in-store should they be making? Well, I do think we have an environment of fear. And I think it is a responsibility of the retailer to actually mitigate that fear as much as possible. And so signs that kind of indicate that the company is being responsible, maybe it's actual visual signs saying maintain six feet apart. Maybe it's audio saying, hey, make sure that you don't crowd each other. Maybe it's other simpler things like seeing people walking around cleaning things could help make you feel less scared. Now, with regards to removing the self-service kiosks, you don't want to go from one end to a very dramatically different other end. That makes the customer experience quite challenging and different, and you're going to find some resistance. So maybe there's a happy median where you could actually move a little bit towards the center and more towards the technology advance and slowly move these audiences towards a completely contactless world. I also think that the stores, especially if you're talking about the off-price and the discounts uh, retailers, I do think they need to change their physical layout and format where it can't be the treasure hunt thing. You have to have a curated experience and therefore very selected products potentially. And so that 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 is my perception. Maybe that's inaccurate, but I don't think you want people to be touching a lot of products. So you want to be able to visually display it in a manner that makes it easy for them to experience it without touching it. And so the, to your question, I do think the physical aspect of the stores will change. The technology aspects will change. 90% of shoppers and they were hesitant to go into a store because of coronavirus. And the reason I think that's kind of significant, I mean, it might not be all that surprising that right now, most consumers would respond by saying 90, you know, 90% of them would say, I don't want to go to a store. 
But to me, it's it's such a big number. It's a hurdle to overcome. So say our you know health officials, local governments say it's okay to open stores under the following you know one two three conditions that have to be met. I think a ninety percent sort of sentiment of I'm afraid to go into a store is a high hurdle to overcome. Mm-hmm. So while I, I do personally, I think there is some pent up demand that people are going to want to go buy certain things and it'll vary by product category. Some out of necessity, you know, there's going to be a rush on everybody wanting to go get a haircut. But, you know, at the same time, people need one haircut. They don't need to go out and get three of them. So um, <laughs> a lot to me, yeah, it's one of those things where I keep repeating to everyone I talk, you know, lost sales are lost sales. You're not going to get them back. You know, you got to focus on what new sales are you going to get and at what level will they be because they're not likely to be the same level as it was before because people still have to get over that hurdle. I think things like the mobile payments, to, to Gotham's point, is very true. You know, I was talking with one friend of mine who made a, a comment that, you know, we've reached, spent the last 10 years trying to touch enable the store. And now they're going to spend the next 10 years trying to remove all of that and, and make it touchless, you know, and go to the other extreme. So, I mean, I think, you know, touchscreens may, maybe have seen their peak <laughs> in retail, I think, as a result. You know, in fact, you know, on a great example, I, I saw the Little Caesars commercial recently where they were highlighting their touchless and contactless pickup for pizza. And they've got see pizza that. kiosks, mm-hmm. if you've seen this, right, where you scan your code from your phone without touching anything again, and a door opens up and out pops the pizza box. <laughs> That's your order. And then you grab it and take it. You never have to touch the kiosk. You don't touch any screens. It's all done by scanning a, a QR code on your phone. Do you know if that's new? Is that a response to the pandemic or have they had? I, as far as I know, it's new because I hadn't seen them do it before. I, I do wonder when they started thinking about it, because that seemed like, a, to me, a pretty elaborate kiosk to pull together on right. short notice. And to have a whole marketing campaign. I mean, I almost kind of see it's like a, a slightly more advanced version of an Amazon pickup locker mm-hmm. uh, in that sense. It just adapted for food in this way. So, I mean, I think it's pretty clever the way they've done that. So you could see more things like that. I do think, you know, when it comes to self-checks, like we were just talking about, I'm personally not a big fan of self-checks in most store environments. Probably talked about that before. And I know in other places, I've written a lot about how much I don't like self-checks at grocery <laughs> stores. <laughs> but, but I do think that, you know, we, we may see things like gesture-based uh, sensors where, you know, I, I wave my hand in front of the screen and it detects what kind of gesture I made and that causes an action. So again, I don't have to touch it. The advantage to those may be if, they're, if they're, the technology is good enough that I don't have to have a smartphone in my hand to scan something, right? I just make a gesture and the, and the system works. We could see things like that. I'm not sure how, if those are mature enough yet for that, but uh, I've seen, heard people talking about it. The one interesting kind of side thing that I, I would throw out on this is on the mobile payment side is we've now got so many different mobile pay systems, right? Mm-hmm. Walmart just is kind of really encouraging everyone to do their Walmart pay. Target has their own system in their app. We've probably all been using Starbucks for, for who knows how long and as a mobile payment. And then you've got basic Apple Pay, Google Pay, Samsung Pay. At some point, I do wonder, much like we used to always ask the question, how many retail apps is the average person willing to have on their phone? How many different mobile payment systems is everyone willing to have on their phone? And the security risk, right? There's another layer of that. It's like, do I really want my credit card? You know, people will ask places. those questions, right? Is it still safe for me to have 20 payment systems on my phone versus I just want one or two? I do wonder, you know, are we going to see people going to the extreme of I'm developing my own because I want to pull you into my ecosystem and avoid all the payment fees that I've got to pay someone else to use someone else's system? Or will consumers really push for, if I use Apple Pay, I want to use Apple Pay. I don't want anybody else's system. If I'm on Android, I want to use Google Pay. I don't want anything else, period. 
everybody please play nice. You know, is that what we're going to hear? Mm-hmm. Or is, are we going to continue to see this elaborate mix and everyone, we're all going to have 12 different payment systems on our devices? Uh, so that's to me, that's another point. new question I don't think we were all thinking about <laughs> two months ago. And, <laughs> and now it's probably going to become more of, a, more of an issue. Mm-hmm. I hope there's a consolidation personally, just because I am definitely on in favor of using Apple Pay or one system that's integrated, which I've seen retailers do, but I know the expense is a bit costly. So I think um, there will be consolidation if I had to, if I had to guess, driven by consumers. From a consumer perspective, that's what everyone desires, right? The, the mobility yeah. that you have across different experiences. And I think that's the contrast between like China and the US where I think it's not as fragmented the Chinese market with regards to mobile pay. And that allows for easier adoption of these technology platforms in comparison to here where we seem to be having a very fragmented market. But hopefully this is a shock event that forces people to start putting customer experience first. Absolutely. And just one more comment on that. I did, I was speaking with Sean Rain who runs um, China market research out of China. And he did say that the payment systems, uh, smile to pay, pay with your face, were developed by the private sector and then gained a lot of traction because they're a higher conforming culture. And the government, once they realized, he didn't say this, but I'm assuming once they realized the benefits of getting on board with that kind of technology, then they adopted it and they were able to have mass adoption of similar tools. So, you know, like we've said, I don't know if we'll head there necessarily to that level of conformity, but interesting to think about. Well, here, I think the regulations are a little bit behind, right? Like we had that scenario where Mm -hmm. I think it was in San Francisco where they actually pulled back all facial recognition kind of things. It's kind of like the backlash on cashless where where a lot of cities right past new laws to require people to accept cash because they're afraid of moving away from that. But you know, now that everyone is to some degree right is afraid of handling cash, maybe we'll see it swing the other way again. I also think it's interesting to mention that there, the mortar intelligence predicted, and this was before the pandemic, but they predicted between 2018 and 2024 that the face recognition market is projected to double to $9 billion. Do you guys think that will be driven primarily by China? Or do you think there's other countries in the APAC regions or in Europe that will contribute to that? Maybe I'll take a first cut at that. Um, so, so let me start by giving an example, right? Like, let me ask you a question. When was the dishwasher introduced in the world? Should I take a guess? Oh gosh, uh, 1950? 1890s <laughs> oh, no. was when it was introduced. And it took until 1950s to actually become a household name. So you are actually kind of right in that sense that like, it took a really long time for the dishwasher to become accepted by the customer. And I bring this example up, I thought it was a nice way to kind of drive home a point is that what is really driving it is customer inertia and adopting certain things. Right? There's, there's a regulation aspect and a company perspective, but there's customer inertia to adopting certain things. And we have a pandemic at this point, which has brought to light the advantages of these things as more and more examples come out from uh, China and some of Hong Kong and other areas, how they've used technology to enable these contactless devices. And I think this resistance from the customer will be chipped away. Their belief structures will get eroded and they'll say like, okay, now there's a trade-off that I'm willing to see uh, this. 
Yet, I do think in general, there is a resistance in the US and in Western world towards facial recognition, more so than in the Asian countries. Um, it could be driven by a lot of things. And quoting most uh, data, I think there were 12% of Americans support even mobile pays, and only 25% think that they are willing to share their data. With some of the uh, statistics that I have, and in comparison, I think this was CNBC had done this, 38% of Chinese consumers are actually more willing to share their data. Right? So there are some cultural elements that are driving these that probably puts some of these countries earlier. There are government structure differences that are also going to escalate these things. So I do think that facial recognition will be a little bit slower in its adoption in the US. But this is the great event, I think, that might fasten the adoption of such technology. Next up, let's discuss essential retail and the safety conditions of frontline workers. In the U.S., much attention is being drawn to both Amazon and Target as its workers are leading nationwide protests regarding the health risks they face in delivering food and supplies to the masses. Starting tomorrow, more than 350 Amazon workers in 50 locations pledged to call out sick, while Target employees are planning a mass sick out on May 1st, which is also International Women's Day. While retailers plan to air their working condition concerns, these same retailers, along with many in the media, have lauded grocery workers as the heroes who are selflessly keeping the world running. Canadian retail influencer Doug Stevens published an insightful article on the business of fashion site last week in which he called out standard retail industry practices such as wage suppression and lack of protections. He also sparked a bit of debate, writing, Quote, when we buy into the hero narrative, we lose sight of the true story, that retail workers are not heroes, but victims. He continued that calling them heroes is simply not enough. Do you agree with Doug's views that retailers need to do more for their frontline employees? What do you think may change for grocery retailers in a post-pandemic world? So to the specific question, do you think that you should do more for retailers? Yes. Absolutely. I think uh, you should do a lot more for the front-end employees. They deserve more. And the pandemic just brings to forefront some of the issues that are being faced by these front-end employees often. It puts a spotlight on some of the problems that have not been discussed. Mm -hmm. Now, with regards to the hero versus... Uh, they're not heroes. Like, I don't see what's the problem in calling them heroes. Personally, I think you do as an employee or as any person likes to be appreciated for what you're doing and calling them a hero in many ways is that, is giving them appreciation for as long as it is authentic, it is giving them appreciation for what they're doing, trying to motivate them. And in this environment where you're not getting a lot of people going back to work, it actually is a way to keep them coming back to work. Of course, I keep saying it's, it has to be authentic because if it is not authentic and if it is not matched with financial actions at the back end, things can get really bad for companies who are trying to do these things by calling them heroes. And like you have almost every retailer has come up with a short-term coronavirus response that has some financial benefits, health benefits, and so forth. The challenge is, are they going to keep this in the long run? Right? Are you actually going to translate this movement where everyone is focusing on this environment um, that these uh, front-end employees face? And are you going to make 
institutional changes. That's where I would like to see, like, are they actually moving the needle on this longer run thing? And I'm not sure, right? Uh, there is an economic aspect to these things. And I would, I think that's where the tension arises is that you're going to fight these. If you increase these benefits, their costs have to be incurred by some people. And that's where the challenge companies will face this challenge and they have to make the right decision, which again, I think is to support the front-end employee. One last thought I would say is that, you know, what this has done, and I think you asked, like, what is the long-term consequences of this? What this has done possibly is not helpful for the front-end employee, because now we are seeing the safety concerns that arise from pandemics and things, right? And as a consequence, one could see, I would predict, an acceleration of technology adoption, trying to get People from these front-end employees, we have all the Instacart, for instance, people who are boycotting or actually threatening to boycott because of the risk that they impose. Now, if it is a machine that is doing some of these jobs, well, maybe this is not going to be as risky. And so from a company perspective, again, I don't think this is good for the country in general or for people who are doing this in a job. But from a firm perspective, I think what you'll see is a switch towards faster adoption of these autonomous technology that will do some of these jobs and will provide more safety. And maybe it's a combination of both. And that, I think, is one of the longer-term consequences that we need to start thinking about and debating as we deal with the post-COVID era. Mm -hmm. There were two things I like what you said about calling them heroes if you're arguing that it's okay to call them heroes and um, not say victims is because companies are trying to motivate them. Uh, I think that's a great point. And I also liked how you said there's a risk here because it might the pandemic might cause more adoption of autonomous technologies that could potentially, it sounds like, reduce the amount of frontline workers needed. Ricardo, what are your thoughts in response to what Gotham said? I agree with uh, you know this idea that by using a label like uh, heroes is does have a motivational factor to it. And let's face it, right, it's a directly opposite motivation to calling someone a victim. Are both true in a sense? Well, to some degree, they kind of are, right? Because we are asking these frontline workers to, in, in some real world ways, right, put themselves in harm's way, in a sense, at least in a risky way. I kind of felt from reading the article that, you know, part of the motivation from should you or shouldn't you refer to this group of people as heroes is because you may be drawing a comparison to healthcare workers, for example. And I don't think what that's not to me is the point, right? We're not trying to put them on the same stage. We're not trying to say they're equivalent. These retail workers, let's face it, in past years, you know, within the industry, we always talk about how it's going to be the year of the associate and that retailers are finally going to invest more in training and benefits and compensation. And almost every single year that we've had that discussion, it doesn't come to pass. You know, we see incremental changes, right? So we've talked in the past when big retailers like Walmart or Target announced they're increasing their minimum wage by another dollar an hour and things of that sort. But we don't see things to the extent and degree that's been required because of the pandemic, right? How quickly did grocers have to move to do things like providing masks, gloves, putting up plastic shields at checkout, providing more cleaning supplies, and in some cases, right, having to position more staff in order to enforce social distancing, putting in markings and signage in stores. 
most of the places that I've gone to is, you know, you walk up to the door, you see the, the, the army of staff who's cleaning shopping carts with wipes. And they're making sure that as you walk up to the store, they hand you a clean cart so that you know it's been cleaned and, and disinfected right, to, to make the consumers feel better. Are those things that we should refer to as, you know, that, that person's a hero for doing this work because wouldn't the rest of us do it on our own? To me, you know, how do we choose to use a label like that? It's because we're labeling a group of people who are rising above very adverse conditions to do something that the larger group either isn't able to do, is either unwilling to do, or just simply isn't positioned to do, but we still need the accomplishments to be done. And they're doing it. I think it's not even just the frontline workers in the stores. I and mean, if we think about the same retail workers in the supply chain at the distribution centers that are making sure the trucks get loaded, that the food gets to the grocery store for the local store associates to unload. I mean, all of these folks have a really critical role to play right now, or none of us are going to have any food on our tables uh, during the pandemic. Where I do think Doug is right is that if we stop at a point where we all sit back and watch the Walmart commercials that tell us how great their associates are and, and, and how you know we should all make that emotional connection with them, if we all stop there, then it's been a wasted effort calling them heroes, right? We should all be doing something more to recognize that they, in fact, do need more than what they're being given. Whether it's during the pandemic or after, we shouldn't just forget about them when this crisis is over. And I do think that part of what the point he's making is a very valid one and important one, um, you know, because again, it, it's all these basic things that we take for granted that we always just have. We only have them now because these people are continuing to go to work, despite the fact that they don't always have the best of conditions to do this job. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Gotham and Ricardo, for joining. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Rethink Retail podcast. That's this week's Retail Rundown. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show, apply at rethink.industries slash podcast guest. That's rethink.industries slash podcast guest. Follow us on Twitter at rethink underscore retail and show some love by subscribing, reviewing on iTunes podcast app. Until next time.